Our scripture reading is from Isaiah 28, the first 13 verses. This is located on page 588 of the Pew Bible. Follow along as I read. This is the word of God, Isaiah 28, 1 through 13. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, and those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mightier and stronger, like a storm of hail destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing water, he cast down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first bright fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also deal with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swollen by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk those taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people, to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward, and be broken, and snared, and taken. Your Bibles open at uh, Isaiah chapter 28. It's all very well to hear promises. It's all very well to hear someone outline what action they propose to take or what they'd like to do. But it's quite another thing to accomplish and achieve what you promise and what you propose. We want proof that someone can deliver what they say, that they can match their words with deeds. It was Eliza Doolittle, wasn't it, who sang about words. She heard all day through, first from him, now from you, but the words never match the deeds. Maybe that's been your experience, and Isaiah understands that's the way we're going to respond to many of the things that he's been saying in his book so far. So when we come to chapter 28, we've reached a new section. 
We're moving away from that section we've just been studying where he has been pointing us forward into the distant future, future certainly distant to the people of his day, even the future to our day. And now he turns us back. He turns back the clock to his own day and time, the people, his contemporaries, and he says to them, you want to believe these great plans God has for you. You want to get your head around those great purposes that I've just described for you. You want to believe that what God promises he can deliver. Well, I'm going to tell you something he will do in your lifetime. You'll see this happen. You'll see it worked out. You can see it begin even right now as you look northwards from where we're sitting here in Jerusalem. As you look northwards to Samaria, the capital of northern Israel, or Ephraim, as it was known. So what Isaiah does is he calls the people of his day and he says to them, Look, I'm going to give you proof that you can believe the long-range promises and purposes of God by showing you how his short-range promises and purposes are fulfilled. And when you see what God is going to do with your own eyes in your own lifetime, then you can trust Him for what He's going to do beyond the boundaries of this present period. That's really what chapters 28 to 37 are about. They're rooted in Isaiah's own experience with his own contemporaries. Now chapter 28 then is an oracle, a, a prophetic word against the political and religious leadership of God's people in the north and in the south of Israel. These people treated the idea of rest and trust as it had been expounded by the prophet as naive. The idea that they should find themselves in a political crisis and that the answer to that political crisis with a huge enemy on the doorstep that the answer should be simply rest, trust, trust that God will intervene, trust that this is all in God's purpose and all in God's plan. Seemed ludicrous to them, incredible to them. And so rather than listen to Isaiah as he teaches this, they decide they will take matters into their own hands and they will find and forge alliances with other nations to protect them. In other words, by the time we read this, what is happening is that northern Israel, sometimes known as Ephraim, has cobbled together an alliance with Syria because they're afraid of the Assyrians. In the south, Judah is seeking an alliance with Egypt because it's afraid of northern Israel and Syria combined and Assyria beyond. In other words, when we come to this chapter, all the balls are in the air and the people of God are trusting in everything except God. And it's into that word, into that situation that Isaiah comes with a word from God. And we discover that this word is targeted. That's the first thing. It's targeted. The opening language of this chapter tells you the opening word, hoi, or oh, or sometimes woe. It's a word of summons. It's kind of wake up, everybody. Listen, this is a serious thing. It arouses strong emotions. It's, it's the prophet getting the feelings of the people engaged with what he is about to say. 
Listen to what God is going to say. Hoy, he says. And the word that comes through the prophet targets Samaria to the north and Jerusalem to the south. First of all, he targets Samaria. He describes the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. That is the capital city of Ephraim to the north. Sitting on a beautiful tree-lined hill with stunning views of the surrounding countryside, the terraced vineyards, the fertile valleys, the commanding presence of this city was renowned in the region. It was called the crown of the nation. And so Isaiah's sarcastic, ironic, the proud crown, quote-unquote, of the drunkards of Ephraim. He's not being very polite to his northern neighbor. It's like someone here in Philly speaking about the people in Toronto or Toronto, as the locals call it, and telling them just how bad they are and how drunken their leaders are. It would have been a slap in the face coming from the prophet. And what he's saying to them is that this beautiful city that had been fortified and beautified with stone and ivory and it was a symbol of the people's confidence in their king and in their land. This, this city's time had come to an end. Their time was running out. Their drunken parties were an example of their pride of place and power. But their time was almost over. Look what he says in verse 1. The fading power, flower of its glorious beauty... These were uh, politicians and religious leaders, and they had fallen into self-indulgence. The Ephraim's banquets and parties were, had religious connotations which made them all the worse because it involved the parading of their own self-importance in the presence of the one who is all-important. He describes here people who are decadent and self-pleasing and luxuriating in their easy lifestyle and have become easy prey, quick pickings for a foreign army to come and to pluck, as it were, from a tree and swallow in one bite, to use the imagery that Isaiah uses here. The story of Ephraim, northern Israel, at the time of Isaiah, is the story of every nation and society and church that is successful and finds abundance and enjoys it and discovers that the success goes to its head and the abundance leads to indulgence. That's true of a nation. But it's also true of a church that's had it too easy for too long, doesn't face the harsh realities of life in the world and has become disengaged really with the core, with its relationship to God. Well, the people of Isaiah's day, the people in Israel, whether it's northern or southern Israel, were the people of God in those days as a nation state, in our day as a church. But the underlying principles apply to the people of God wherever they find themselves today. Who is going to humble this proud city? Isaiah could have said, well, it's the Assyrians, they'll do it. But he doesn't mention the instrument, he goes straight to the source and he says, ultimately, it is the sovereign Lord. It is God. God himself will unleash these powers, these mighty and strong powers that he mentions here. 
he will literally pick up and he will throw the enemy at northern Israel, at Ephraim. And that was exactly the way it was going to happen. What was going to happen was that the Assyrians would gather their strength. God would withdraw his security and his presence from them. The Assyrians would come sweeping through like, like a mighty river as, as uh, Isaiah describes here, like a storm of hail, like a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing and overwhelming waters. And Assyria would asset strip the whole nation of things and people and take its people into Babylon or take its people into the, the nation scattering them to the four winds of the heavens. The fading flower of its glorious beauty. Because they had become confident not in the Word of God. The Word of God seemed to them an inauspicious thing. Uh, something immaterial to their lives. They had been accumulating things putting their confidence in these things rather than in the words of God. And they were going to discover in the words of a hymn we sing, Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. They were discovering that their beauty that is attached to the things of this world will ultimately be trodden underfoot, as Isaiah says here. That was the destiny of the northern part of Israel. In fact, Samaria would fall in 722 BC and the entire population of northern Israel would disappear. No longer ever to have an identity and become a, 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 an identifiable people from that point onwards. But Isaiah can't help himself. Verse 5. He always smuggles in like a surprise in the story a word of hope because the God who makes threats keeps promises. There will be a crown. This time not the crown that they have taken and distorted, the proud crown of Samaria, which in the language of verses 1 to 3 becomes the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim that will be trodden underfoot. Do you imagine some party goers on New Year's Eve who are gone out and they're roaming the streets in their drunken stupor and they see a Christmas wreath, Christmas wreath hanging on someone's door and they, they take it and they put it on their head and they play this to be their crown and, and, uh, and in their glory and in their fun and enjoyment and merriment they show it off and then it falls to the ground and they trample it underfoot. This, says Isaiah, is the fate of northern Israel. But there will be a remnant. There will be some among those people who know God, who are believers. And for them there will be a crown. It will not be a wreath from a door. It will not be something that can be trodden underfoot. It will be a glorious crown, a crown of glory, a beautiful diadem, a diadem of beauty. This will come to the remnant of these people. Listen to what it says. This crown will not fall down. This crown cannot be trampled underfoot. This crown cannot fade away. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. 
and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Now I tell you, northern Israel was to be displaced and dispersed and would disappear. Its people would become just part of the melting pot of humanity as it moves here and there, intertwining its racial roots with everybody else's. Some of you in this room may very well be descended from some of those ten tribes of northern Israel, dispersed among the nations, for all you know. And here is Isaiah saying, although you will not be able to see it, God has his remnant there. God has people who are part of the covenant of grace. People who believed him, who believed God, who trusted God in Isaiah's day, who would be dispersed with everybody else. But their great, 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 great grandchildren may very well be sitting in 10th Presbyterian Church this morning, embracing the gospel, having come to know the Savior that they looked forward to back then. God has a remnant. He always has a remnant. Whatever is going on in the world, whatever is going on in Iraq or Iran or Afghanistan or Pakistan, to believers, God always has a remnant according to His grace. And He promises to that remnant a crown of beauty that will not fade away, a crown of glory that cannot be trodden underfoot. He promises them a place in the New Jerusalem. And it's still a challenge, isn't it? It's still a challenge when you ask yourself the question, what is it that distinguishes the people he describes in verses 5 and 6 from the people he describes in verses 1 to 4? And the thing that distinguishes them is this. They find, they find the Lord, they find the Lord Jesus from our New Testament perspective. They find Yahweh, they find this God and Father of our Lord Jesus they find Him to be their joy. They find Him to be their treasure. They find Him to be their delight. And they're prepared to go out the camp and suffer for Him. We're looking at an issue coming up in General Assembly this week about those who, who believe that, that people can trust in Jesus and can remain part of the Muslim community, go along to the mosque, live in the family, engage in the Muslim traditions, pray towards Mecca, and still believe in Jesus in their heart. That isn't going outside the camp. That is not going outside and professing Jesus as Lord. That is hiding. And this is being advocated as the latest in mission. Strategy, by the way, for the world. Well, here's Isaiah, and he's He's targeting those who belong and who are known to belong to the people of God. Well, he's been talking about northern Israel, targeting Samaria, talking about Toronto down here in Philadelphia. That's what, that's what the prophet's been doing. And then they're listening very closely. You can almost hear them saying, Amen, give it to them. Sock it to them. You know, really, the pastor's really, the prophet is really giving it to them today. 
I remember when I was in Northern Ireland, my very first church, somebody shaking my hand at the door one morning after I preached a humdinger of a sermon. You should have heard it. It was one of my good ones. And uh, they've just gone downhill since then. And he said to me at the door, he said, boy, you really gave it to them today. And that's what they were thinking in Isaiah's day as they're listening to him. And you can imagine as he's been preaching, he's probably been pointing northwards, you know, pointing up to Canada, pointing up to northern Israel. And then suddenly he pauses. And his gestures embrace the people who are standing there. And he says to them, And these also, these also, you people in Jerusalem, you people here in Jerusalem listening to me, these also with wine stagger with strong, you think they're bad, you're just as bad. You think they've gone the wrong route. You've gone the wrong route. Listen to them. The priest and the prophet, the religious professionals, the functionaries within the religious establishment, within the institution, these also, the prophet and the priest, real with strong drink, are swallowed by wine. They don't just swallow the wine. They're swallowed by the wine. They're taken over by it, intoxicated with ideas influences, philosophies, thinking the way the world thinks rather than thinking the way God thinks. And what's the result? Look what he says the result is. They reel in vision. In other words, they don't actually get a word from God to say to people. Not only that, but they stumble in giving judgment. That is, they don't have discernment. They can't distinguish between right and wrong, good and bad, better and best. It's like all of their tables are full of filthy vomit, and the stench of vomit is palpable and unbearable. It makes you want to throw up, really. That's what he says about the people in Jerusalem. Just when they thought Samaria was getting it, suddenly Isaiah puts the boot in to them. These also. And it becomes clear as we go on that he's speaking now about his own hometown and the church leaders, the prophets and the priests who are indicted for staggering three times, wandering, reeling twice, and swallowing or being swallowed by the wine of influences and philosophies and ideas of the world. So the Word of God is targeted to the people of God. Whether they're the real people of God or they're merely the professing people of God. Then secondly, God's word is rejected. So look at verse uh, 9 for a moment. To whom will he teach knowledge? Now, he's, this is in quotes. He's now quoting the people. He's quoting these prophets and priests that he's just described. What are they saying? What are they saying? This is what they're saying about Isaiah. To whom will he teach knowledge. And to whom will he explain the message? This is their defiant response to the Word of God being preached through the prophet Isaiah. They did not like Isaiah's ministry. Verse 9. They found it too simplistic, too childish. They're saying to one another, is he trying to teach us? 
I mean, we are the religious professionals. Who does he think he is? Who does he think we are? That he should speak to us in this way. Will he explain the message? What was his message? It was the prophetic word of God. Isaiah's ministry was focused on a simple appeal to the people of God to trust in God. It was simple, straightforward. Here you are faced with a crisis. What do you do when you're in a crisis and you're a believer? <laughs> you trust in God. Oh, um, but that's not enough. You see, we, Isaiah, we, we're, we're a nation state here. There's some politics involved here. We have, we have real estate we need to look after and manage here. We, we really need to look around us and, and make sure that we're covered and we have insurance policies and we have, we have other resources and we have other people and we have influence in other places so that they can come to our rescue. And Isaiah says to them, no, trust in God. And they said, this is ridiculous. What kind of way is that for us to behave? And Isaiah goes over it again and again, building on what he said, expanding what he said, but he's saying the same thing. And so to them, it sounds as if he's just going over and over and over and over and over. And they're mocking him. They're mocking his simplicity. They're mocking his sense of the, of the basic, fundamental childlike impact of the Word of God. John Calvin, you know, when he's talking about Scripture, says that, that what we find in the Scripture is God's baby talk to humanity. It's like God is leaning over the baby carriage, looking at the baby and going, goo, 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 blah, 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 to try and make it smile. God is speaking to us in simple tones to get our attention, to get us to listen to Him. Or Martin Luther. Martin Luther said this, when, when I preach, I regard neither doctors nor magistrates, of whom I have above 40 in my congregation. I have all my eyes on the servant maids and on the girls. I saw the children. Actually, that sounds funny. And, and uh, I'll just yeah, read that again. I have all my eyes on the servant maids and on the children. And if the learned men are not well pleased with what they hear, well, the door is open. Martin Luther really needed to learn to be more explicit, didn't he, in what he was saying. Well, they didn't like his ministry. They didn't like his style of preaching, so they were mocking him. I want you to notice that's what's happening in verse 10. They're mocking him. Now, it doesn't come across very well in English. Uh, Professor Brueggemann at uh, Princeton and Childs in Yale both agree that probably this is too intellectual. The way this trans is translated is far too intellectual. In the Hebrew, there's just a repetition of words. I'll give you the Hebrew in a Scottish accent. Uh, saw, 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 saw. Qua, 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 qua. Saw, 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 saw. Qua, 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 qua. That's, that's, that was what they were saying. This is all it sounds like to us. We're listening to Isaiah preaching and it just sounds like saw, 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 saw. Qua, 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 yada, 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 yada. You know, I mean, it's, it makes meaningless. They were laughing at him. They were saying, look at this guy. Listen to this guy. What's he really saying? It's nothing. And they were mocking and they were laughing at him. It made no sense to them. Even though God had said that the prophet's words should be listened to, the people were questioning 
his ability to speak. Well, what happens when people refuse to hear the word of God? That's what they were doing. The leadership, the rulers, the priests, the prophets refused to listen as God clearly and plainly explained to them what it meant to rest in him. There, there you have the heart of the message in verse 12. We'll come back to it later. This is rest. Give rest to the weary. And this is repose. In other words, what God has said, the word that's come to us, the word that comes from God, verse 11, is what brings rest to your heart, shalom to your life. As you trust it, as you rest in it, as you receive it. But if you won't listen to that, if you will not listen to that gracious word of the gospel, then you will hear it in the barbarian language of the Assyrian invaders. You don't like what I'm saying, Isaiah says. It's all so, 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 quo, 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 yada, 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 yada. So I'm going to send you people. And when they speak, that's how they'll sound. Not like a Scotsman speaking in America, but somebody who cannot speak American, English. If that's what you want to call it. There's somebody you, somebody you will not understand at all. A foreign power. What, listen to it. Look at verse 11. For by people of strange lips with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people. To whom he has said. And do you see the simplicity? The simplicity. Here's the simplicity. This is what Isaiah had been going on and on and on and on about that they said was yada, yada, yada. This is rest. Give rest to the weary and this is repose. That's what he's saying. Rest in God. Trust in God. Believe God's word. Believe God. Believe God. Yada, yada, yada. So the word of the Lord will be to them. Saw, 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 saw. Qua, 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 qua. It really will be. Bloody, 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 bloody. Yada, yada, yada. You see, there's a double entendre here. The stammering of the Assyrians is God's punishment for the mocking by the nation's leadership of the intelligible message of the prophet. The prattle of the preacher would give way to the prattle of the foreigner. You know, that's what God had warned them back in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Eight. Deuteronomy had warned the children of Israel that he would take them into the promised land, but they were to follow his word and his laws and so on. And if they did that, they would stay in the land. But if they didn't do that, he would send down people with foreign languages who would come and sweep them away. They would be broken, snared, and taken. The language is the language of assault, of attack, and of exile. It's all there. And Isaiah's warning, that's what's going to happen because of your response to the word of God. So here's the principle, you see. When we refuse, reject, or ignore the simple, intelligible word of God, divine judgment will fall in the shape of it becoming unintelligible to us. 
That's the principle that Paul cites in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You remember he's contrasting there the foreign languages, tongues, and prophecy, the proclamation of the Word of God. He's distinguishing them, and he says, by quoting from uh, Isaiah 28, he, he, he quotes that and addresses, says, the words which are used by God to address the childish nation of Israel now are forced, now are addressed to the childish church in Corinth. Let me quote them to you. What he says in 1 Corinthians 14, In the law it is written, By people of strange languages and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, languages are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, if you know the context of Corinthians, the context is Paul is really up against it from the uh, Jewish population of Corinth who are really angry. They're, they're finding the message of the gospel a stumbling block. They're tripping over it all the time. They're not coming to Christ. They're listening to this message, but, but it's getting nowhere. It's not getting through to them. And Paul brings this in here because, you see, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell in answer to the prophecies and promises of a new covenant, on the day of Pentecost, everybody in Jerusalem heard the message about God spoken in their own distinct dialect as well as language. The Word of God was clear on that first day of Pentecost in Jerusalem to the people living in Jerusalem, the people in the same city to which Isaiah is ministering here. And many of them understood it. Many of them believed. Many of them rejected that message. But there on the day of Pentecost, it was the most miraculous and, and remarkable reversion of Babel. And everybody is hearing in their own language and dialect the mighty works of God. But the rejection of Christianity by Jerusalem has taken place by the time Paul writes to Corinth. Believers have been scattered, dispersed from Jerusalem and Judea. Wherever he goes, Paul is rejected by the synagogue. And he's writing to this church that has a fair number of people associated with it that are of Jewish extraction, and he says this, why is it that now when you meet for worship, and people speak in these foreign languages. People don't understand it any longer. They have to be translated. Why is that happening? It's because in the purpose of God, they have served their purpose. They have served as a sign to unbelieving Israel that God is not talking to them anymore. And from now on, prophecy, the preaching of the Word of God, is a sign to believers whether they're Jew or Gentile, that God hasn't given up on you. God hasn't left you behind. God is addressing you. He's speaking to you. He's speaking His word and will to you. He's encouraging you to come in simple and clear terms and trust in Christ. Yeah. The big question then is whether we have heard this message of trusting and resting in Christ. I remember 
Not too long ago, just before we left Scotland for London, I think it was, I took our younger children to a, a Franklin Graham uh, crusade in Perth. Those kind of things didn't happen very often in Scotland, but I wanted them to see what it was like to have a num actually jars of clay were playing. And uh, uh, on, we'd been out one day and had met these guys, and uh, I want, they wanted to hear them, so I was taking them to hear them. I went to hear Franklin Graham. And I remember in the process of Franklin Graham preaching, he, he wasn't doing this very long by that stage. And it all seemed very, 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 very simple. Almost too simple. Almost ridiculously simple. The theologian in me is saying, come on. And then God did a work in my heart. I remember that quite clearly. It's almost like one of these little things that God gives you late on in your life to refresh your soul. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, if I ever get beyond the simplicity of which he is speaking, then I've lost it altogether. And to come back with the clarity and simplicity of the gospel, what Isaiah is saying here, this is rest. This is trust. This is what you need to do. You don't need to have great nuanced answers when it comes to this simple thing of whether or not you trust God, whether you believe God. It's quite straightforward. No matter how sophisticated we are, no matter how sophisticated my theology may be, at the end of the day it comes down to this. Do I believe God's Word? Do I believe God? Do I believe Him? And that's really a question for all of us to answer today. Do I believe God? Now, why may I not believe Him? Well, there are some things, some people that I will not let God speak to me through. Do you know that? And there are some things I will not, not let God speak to me about. Some people I will not let God speak to me through. Some things I will not let God speak to me about. And if I'm going to hear God, and if God's Word is not going to descend into the blah de blah de blah but be meaningful to me, then I must come to the Word of God with an open heart, a submissive spirit, and see that in this Word is rest, is life, is eternal joy. Let's pray. Father, someone may have come in this morning and been struggling to know what it is to be a Christian and needs to hear that in the end it is receiving and resting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us, Lord, have got so tired and weary, battle-worn. We've gone old in our Christian life and we've lost the center and we need to discover, rediscover, be refreshed in our spirits by knowing that to go on as a Christian means to receive and rest on the Lord Jesus. And some of us may be near the end of our journey, 
What lies ahead is the final battle with the evil one, and we need to know that what it will take then is what it took at the beginning, that we should receive and rest on the Lord Jesus. We do that now, Father, thanking you in his strong name. Amen.